Last year, I was invited to speak to the Association of Filipino Scientists in America, and I had prepared this my whole script, my presentation. I was going into it really confident. And actually, the day before I was set to give my talk was the Atlanta Spas shootings. I think that sometimes I've talked with other Filipinos about how Asian American umbrella term, we don't always feel like we fit into that or it's not nuanced enough to include our experience. But on that day, I really felt one with others in the Asian American community because no matter no matter how different you are and no matter your ethnicity, I think that a lot of Asian Americans felt so much pain because we saw our moms, we saw our aunts, we saw our friends in the victims. And the day after, I was reflecting a lot about, you know, am I going to be able to speak? I'm someone that doesn't like to speak anyway. How am I going to, in this state, be able to talk about my own racial identity on this day um, where we are all kind of grappling with a lot of pain after the events? And I had talked with my sister and my now husband, and they really gave me confidence that all of my experiences up until that point were preparing me to be able to to use my voice that day. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you had a restful and enjoyable holiday season with your loved ones. This week's guest is Rachel Lucero. She's the host and creator of The Sago Show, a Filipino food show that seeks to examine the intricate intersectionality of culture, history, and education through creative and authentic Filipino food recipes. Rachel is a Filipino-American, and as a former Teach for America Corps member, she shares a strong passion and commitment for education and social justice, especially for those who are marginalized and underserved. She currently works full-time as a business analyst, and she continues to find ways to create more expansive and insightful content on her YouTube channel, The Sago Show, by studying different slices of Filipino history and food culture. With her bachelor's in bioengineering and a master's in education from John Hopkins University, Rachel found her unique calling on YouTube by combining her interest in cultural competency, technology, and pop culture, all through creating snack-sized videos and reels on Instagram, the perfect cross-section between entertainment and education. In only a year, The Sago Show has grown to nearly 1,100 subscribers on YouTube and more than 70,000 views on social media, while maintaining a strong and ongoing content engagement. You can find her latest featured interview article, Filipino Food Has a New Spokesman, on Eater Magazine. Rachel's increased exposure through her brands also allowed her to give numerous public speeches this past year at USC and to the Association of Filipino Scientists in America, 
which helped her realize the power of her voice. Through this realization, Rachel became more mindful and intentional with her brands and the ways she could also help elevate the voices of those who need elevated. We believe Rachel beautifully embodies the discover more ethos of the curious mindset, and we are beyond excited to have this conversation with her. You can find the Sago Show on Instagram at Sago Show, S-A-G-O-S-H-O-W, and Rachel at Rachel Lucero without the E. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a kind, empowering intro. I feel all sorts of ways from hearing it. Yeah. So based on the questionnaire you submitted as part of our Discover More process, you told us and you mentioned topics that you're interested about is career pathfinding, but not just a traditional career pathfinding, but in terms of viewing through the lens of an immigrant as a woman in the workforce, right? You talked about some of the expectations and some of the realities and it sounds like you have gone through a lot of journey to get to this realization about why career pathfinding is unique and individualized to every single person. So what does career pathfinding mean for you to Rachel, but also what does it mean to you as an Asian American? It certainly didn't feel very easy going through it. It feels a lot easier now looking back on all of the things that happened in order for me to find my path. but. I've been reflecting on this a lot recently, and when I was in high school, I was so dead set on becoming a bioengineer, on pursuing my PhD, and being a research scientist because that's what I thought that my only path was. I really, I really believed that. And when I entered university, I went to University of Washington in Seattle, which I loved my experience. I soon began to feel that that one path that I had put all of my eggs in that one basket wasn't really what I, I just knew in my heart that that was not what I wanted to do. You know, I remember back to when I finished my degree and I told my parents I really wanted to be a teacher. It was really tough. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure maybe others can relate, but I think my parents weren't thrilled about me freshly graduated with an engineering degree wanting to be a science teacher. And we had a lot of tough moments. And I guess fast forwarding to now, I think what makes it tough, especially as a child of immigrants, is that you're going through this inner turmoil on your own of being scared that you don't know exactly what your passion is or you don't know exactly what you're meant to do. You're going through that on your own, but then you're also going through this struggle with your family and having to prove something to them that path that you intended wasn't the right one and you don't know your exact path now but it's best to find out what that passion is rather than stick with a path that seems safer and you know that ultimately isn't right for you so i think it's hard because of the duality of like those two struggles at the same time most definitely. Yeah, there's almost contrary forces of, you know, what you inherently want and what maybe society, parents, loved ones, all of those want is definitely a balance that I think we're all seeking at the end of the day. I know just through conversations with Benoit and other guests that we've had, I think, you know, that volume is turned up even more so for immigrant families. And so that's something I definitely recognize and kind of would like to zoom in a little bit on in terms of like the process as a whole. I think it's one thing you know, you alluded to the idea of following your heart, knowing what was like the next most aligned step, but what made you feel that teaching was the next step? 
Um, I think for a lot of listeners out there, they may be thinking of like trying to find that next pathway or that next, I relate to it in terms of like an aligned step forward. I don't need to know what that like end goal is perhaps, but rather what's the next directed, aligned, purposeful step. So how did you ultimately come to the thought of teaching? I know that's evolved to the business analyst position right now, but would love to hear kind of some of maybe the questions, processes, or like reflections that you do internally, because it's very apparent, you know, very, very self-aware, very intentional, I guess, with the steps that you're taking. So I think your story of how you came to those decisions would be really powerful for anyone listening. When I was in college studying bioengineering, I had a lot of opportunities just on the side to participate in educational activities um, and outreach between our engineering program and local schools. I was really lucky to kind of have that exposure. And that was really what unlocked a lot of my interest in education because I was lucky to kind of have that partnership that was in our program. But looking back on that time, it's kind of like I saw these paths that were carved out, the defined paths were carved out in front of me. And I didn't want to follow either of the, any of those paths. And so I kind of had to nudge around and find, okay, is there an opening here? Is this something that I would like to follow? And that's sort of what I did. Uh, I took education classes on the side as my studies credits. I volunteered at local schools. And so the more and more that I sort of dipped my toe in a couple of different educational activities, that's what allowed me to access that other path that I didn't really see at first. But when you're in a very you know, set major with defined pathways, it's easy to kind of overlook that there are other things that you can do with that type of degree. You can, you can really do anything as long as you are open-minded about the different like opportunities that could be there that you could use that degree for. I think that just spreading your wings and trying to look for different activities that you might be interested in can unlock that path. It's almost like we talked about this in one of our first episodes in terms of minimizing regrets. I believe that was our episode two. Uh, which was <laughs> recorded forever ago. And we often talked about it's in humans innate interest into venture into the unknown by creating either pattern recognitions or trying to minimize the unknown because like fear and unknown, it's very primitive, it's very primal. And the only way to minimize unknown is by converting more unknown into known. And the only way to convert that is by doing. So I sense that sentiment and ethos in what you just shared is that you can only do so much vetting, you can only shadow so many different positions and different experiences, you can only do so much research, but the only way to truly do it without knowing is just by doing it. And that reminds me of what Will Smith said in his autobiography, and he talks about life is like school, except it's the opposite, where in school, you get the lessons first. And then with the lessons you're given, you study the lessons and then you're up for the test. But in life, life reality tests you first with a test. And then it's our jobs to collectively seek out the lesson from the test that was given to us by life. Obviously the ethos and the importance of education is put on a pedestal, on a pedestal, on a pedestal, on a pedestal, right? Because for our immigrant parents, education in their time was the only way that they could perceive success. I began to think about this in terms of intergenerational trauma and us as child of immigrants being an extension of our parents' dreams. And I think about my parents' journey 
um, immigrating from the Philippines to the U.S. and coming with this dream in mind. And uh, intentionally or not, the children of immigrants are going to be the ones that have sort of that pressure and weight that is just given to us generationally to live out our parents' dream. I think that that is really heavy, you know, and I resented that a lot as a child and um, as a college student, I felt like I was being inhibited in creative ways in, in my potential because I was being made to follow a certain path that was leading to success. And the way that I've sort of changed my mindset around that, because I, I was naive before, I know now my parents weren't doing these things because they just got a kick out of it. They just wanted me to get straight A's. They were like forcing me to do all of these things. They did it as a result of a trauma that they had that I wear with me now, that they weren't able to achieve their dream when they were in the Philippines and they came here seeking that. And it's not anyone's fault per se that I now have to wear that, but I've begun to be less resentful of that because I know why it's happening. Definitely. That's a really powerful idea you brought up of your personal journey almost being an extension of a dream. I've never really thought about it in that way, and it's definitely something I personally will be unpacking and I would encourage listeners to as well. Let's zoom back to when you were in school, and how do you think the education system might be able to help navigate or shift that experience? I think I'm especially curious from your Teach for America experience, if you think there's any elements of the education system that could facilitate that process of recognizing differences of extensions of parents' dreams, personal dreams, just really the interplay between this cultural component and the education system, which it seems like has grown close to your heart over the last few years, would be a really fascinating idea to talk through. It's that relationship of navigating these societal pressures and what the education system can do, you know, moving forward to facilitate that growth and ultimately healing. Well, I guess zooming back to my childhood education, I remember it as a time that I'm not really feeling especially one with being Filipino. I do have a different experience from a lot of other Filipinos, but I think some might relate that my hometown growing up was predominantly white. I didn't have a lot of Filipino classmates or interact with Filipino people at school. I didn't have any Asian teachers. And I think that in the pursuit of success, in the pursuit of my family's dream, I did have to assimilate a lot in school to fit in with what my friends were doing and fit in with the path that school directs you to, to be, you know, very obedient in class and to respond only when we're supposed to respond. And only learn about certain things. And I wonder what my childhood would have been like if in school we were allowed to, or we were enabled to celebrate our own cultures. Looking back to my K-12 education, I didn't really think about myself as being Filipino. And I, I feel like I didn't really get to share that with my friends or to really explore it very much or celebrate it. I, I definitely felt this duality of being at home and being Filipino there and then being at school where I act a certain way. 
I think when I was in the classroom teaching, I always had that in the back of my mind is how do I let my students really just flourish and not inhibit them with the structures of traditional education that people of our age would know. And I think that Teach for America did a a decent job at preparing us to enable our students to teach us even. We don't have to lead them to their greatness, that they, they are already great. And how can we get them to show us that in the classroom rather than having them follow specific homework, specific activities? The school system that we grew up with was so defined, I think, at least for me growing up in in public K-12. I'm definitely curious around maybe any specific examples or stories. Like, do you have any, not necessarily favorite students, but any student stories from your time teaching STEM programs that come to mind that maybe illustrate this lesson of learning from your students or the greatnesses within them? I feel such good memories about about this particular story. So when I was in high school, I was part of Science Olympiad. And when I joined Teach for America, our school didn't have a Science Olympiad program but we were invited to start one. And so I became the the coach for our Science Olympiad team. And I recruited some of my students from my classes to join. Uh, In Science Olympiad, you're working throughout the year to prepare for different events in the Olympiad at the end of the year when you go to tournaments. Um, There's usually a regional and state tournament. There was one particular event that my students on our team really loved, which was a code-breaking event, where they were basically given a piece of like code. It could just be symbols. And then they had to find the cipher and then decipher the message. And they really, really were into, into that event in particular. And so after school, we would practice and train for this event. And I had sort of one way that I would train for it and I was like oh you know we should study these past tests in previous years and we can kind of um, recognize the patterns that they've done before and I found that the more and more I tried to instill my own way of studying or my own way of preparing it wasn't really working with my students they had their own way of deciphering these codes and so I kind of just you know, gave them the space, gave them the time in my classroom to do that together. We entered our state tournament and we were definitely the underdogs of the entire tournament. Um, The other schools that we were competing against were prep schools, private Catholic schools that had been well recognized in the Science Olympiad community for a while and were very established. And my students, they were just so determined on this event And it was amazing to see that, you know, they had done all of this preparation on their own, you know, basically really without a lot of my help, but they entered the code breaking competition and they won the silver in state. And I remember just feeling so proud of them as they walked up and got their silver medals that like, you know, they did that on their own. I I didn't really teach them anything. Creating the space where they got to do something that they really enjoyed and loved and then got to be recognized for it, I will never forget that feeling of them having their medals. Since this is an audio-only platform, I just want to describe this spark and this light and how vivid and alive Rachel became on screen talking about this experience and talking about her former students. And this is what I felt throughout the entirety of the story, where it's like the idea that empowerment is not given, right? You can't empower others. Others have to empower themselves. But what we can do, like what you did, Rachel, as a teacher, is to create an opportunity 
and create a space for the students to find their own voices, for the students to find that confidence in their ability to have these conversations, have these discussions, and to decipher whatever that code is. And I think that's empowerment, and I think that's, I'm sure in hindsight, that attributed greatly to the success of your Olympia, right, for the first time by receiving a silver. And that's extremely powerful because as a helping profession myself, as a aspiring clinical psychotherapist, I often think, oh, it is me who it is my responsibility. It is my ownership to instill whatever the toolkits that I have, uh, whatever trainings, whatever expertise that I have. And the outcome of their success is predicated on my effort. That's how I used to believe until recently. And I realized that's not the case. All I can do is all I can do, but I have to let them to enjoy and to learn about the process. Otherwise, what are they getting from it, right? It's almost like me robbing their future selves of going through the breakthrough. If I want to instill that onto them, they have to experience that and that joy can be replicated. So, um, and I share that with you because you told us about, you were able to realize the power of your voice, right? Obviously we talked about this during the introduction. You were able to realize and discover the power of your voice through the numerous public speeches that you gave last year. But I reckon hearing about your how relevant and how powerful Teach for America journey has been for you, I reckon that recognition started even before that. But I, I think the, the true catalyst was at the public speeches when you gave. But I would love to ask you about that. What did you learn through this empowering process that you gifted your students with? And it's like an extension of Aiden's questions, where I feel like the story was extremely touching and very powerful. But uh, I'm interested to see how were you empowered and how did you, maybe how were you transformed? How did you show up after this experience for you personally? I think that being a teacher certainly transformed my perception of myself in terms of my voice having impact on others because I was able to work with and impact students. And prior to that, I was, you know, in my engineering education with limited education, like actual in the classroom experience. In engineering, I, I never really felt like I was impacting anyone but the cells in my dish or like the pipette I was holding. I, I never really felt like I was having an impact directly on another human being. And when I was in the classroom, it unlocked that for me because I always grew up and was a super, super quiet child. My teachers in school would beg me to participate. I would get failing grades on Socratic seminars because I wouldn't talk. And I always, you know, a lot of that is my own upbringing and not feeling like I was going to say the right thing or being scared of being wrong but when you're a teacher you have to talk every day very frequently so i think that being in the classroom really did help me find that voice and transformed me from being a really really quiet person to someone that had to talk every single day and i remember at the beginning of my teaching career i would script out everything that i was going to say because I just previously for presentations had always done that. And, you know, as a teacher, you don't necessarily have tons of time to be scripting out every single word. And what do you know, things happen in the classroom that you don't expect and you didn't account for in the script. So I became a lot more powerful in my voice as a teacher because I was really forced to in that situation. 
in working with students and, and seeing my impact in the classroom, it, it helped me believe that the things that I had to say could really help someone else. And so when I was starting the Sago show and when I was recording my voiceovers to put out there on YouTube, I had all sorts of feelings like, number one, oh my goodness, I hate hearing my voice <laughs> heard back to myself. Two, I, I always had these fears of, like, is what I'm saying correct? Is is what I'm saying useful to someone else? Is someone else going to listen to this and find any value from it? I had a lot of fears putting my work out there and having people listen to it. I think after my first few YouTube videos and hearing um, really positive feedback from viewers, like people reached out to me on Instagram and told me that after watching my videos, they had a completely changed mindset about Filipino history and they heard things for the first time that they um, had never thought about before. And it helped me kind of abate some of that worry that, oh, I'm, I'm not going to say the right thing. I'm going to stumble over my words. I, I'm nervous because it doesn't matter if it's necessarily perfect. The, the important thing is actually saying what you think and having that courage to do that. It's okay if it's not perfect because just what you say might impact someone. They might not care if it's perfect, but they're going to hear something from it. Um, as long as you are being authentic and you're intentional about what you say, coming from, from teaching and, and starting the Sago show and like just putting my thoughts out there more has given me a lot of confidence and, and felt power in my own voice. And even now, I still get a little bit nervous. Last year, I was invited to speak to the Association of Filipino Scientists in America, and I had prepared this, my whole script, my presentation. I was going into it really confident. And actually the day before I was set to give my talk was the Atlanta Spas shootings. I think that sometimes I've talked with other Filipinos about how Asian American umbrella term, we don't always feel like we fit into that or it's not nuanced enough to include our experience. But on that day, I really felt one with others in the Asian American community, because no matter, no matter how different you are and no matter your ethnicity, I think that a lot of Asian Americans felt so much pain because we saw our moms, we saw our aunts, we saw our friends in the victims. And the day after I was reflecting a lot about, you know, am I going to be able to speak? I'm someone that doesn't like to speak anyway. How am I going to, in this state, be able to talk about my own racial identity on this day um, where we are all kind of grappling with a lot of pain after the events. And I had talked with my sister and my now husband and they really gave me confidence that all of my experiences up until that point were preparing me to be able to, to use my voice that day. It ended up being, you know, really challenging to address the group and we we talked about the shootings and we, you know, grieved together in that space of Filipino scientists and, and then continued to talk about the Sago show and Filipino identity journeys. Reflecting on that day, I knew that I had grown so much because I had always seen myself as the one who listened and didn't talk. But in that moment, I knew that I had to be the one to speak because it was just such a hard time. And I think that being able to speak that day, it was such a hard time 
Uh, and I think that being able to speak that day and be in community with other Asian Americans um, gave me a lot of a lot of solace and, and confidence that we could, you know, grieve together. It ended up being okay, but it was um, a hard experience for sure. And I think about that day a lot. That story resonated with me uber deeply because also as I guess an introvert and a bit of a perfectionist, it can be really difficult to share. And I think that's big beauty of the story you just told is that it gives others permission. It creates a bit of a ripple effect of, especially in the circumstance that you delivered that speech in, it's, hey, this is tough for me. I'm uncomfortable speaking in public spaces, especially with all this context. But think about the number of people that heard you speak despite all of those things. That gives them a permission, an empowerment of, hey, your voice matters. Hey, it's important to speak up when things are difficult. Um, so really just want to acknowledge you for taking those steps. I mean, it's an amazing journey. You just said, you know, you were scripting out Teach for America full classes and then giving, you know, a complete speech at the time of a lot of difficulties and sadness is just like an amazing journey. And I mean, even now doing a two hour free form interview is uh, quite the turnaround, which is just amazing. And I think to share that with other people of your voice creates a ripple for other people to speak up, especially through the lens of creativity. It doesn't need to be speaking specifically or making food videos or podcasting, but like your creativity gives others permission to be creative, to share what they have to say. Um, so that's just a bit of a riff that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, you know, sharing one's voice gives permission or empowerment to others to, to do the same thing. That made me think about you know, a lot of the narrative among Asian Americans that that we are are silent. And I know that that's not, you know, true. A lot of Asian Americans aren't silent, but it is a bit of an, an archetype or stereotype that is bestowed upon us that we are not participating. The journey that I've taken in, in the last five years or so has helped me to challenge that in myself and to as you're talking about, giving that permission to others to also speak. I remember being in these diversity conversations during our Teach for America training, um, in which we have these tough conversations on, on race in America. What does it mean to be a Filipino American in this political climate at the time in, in 2017? And I was, I literally felt frozen. I had no idea what to say. I felt like I hadn't grappled with any of these ideas. And so I literally was silent in a lot of these discussions. And I felt very challenged at that time. A friend told me, um, because we were talking about, you know, how do you get someone to believe in your ideas? It feels like this group of people isn't buying in. They're not, I don't know how to convince them of something. And my friend told me something really wise, which was that, if you stay true to your intention and, and your beliefs and you speak up about them, then others will see that and they will follow naturally. And you might not even know that they are, you might not see it, but you have to be confident in your voice and just keep doing what you're doing and have faith that others will see it. I, I find that very powerful for me um, because I'm someone that really just likes to change someone's mind and I'm someone that's like, oh, why didn't you believe me the first time I said it? And so I, I try to just have more faith to focus on crafting my, my own voice and, and honing my voice 
and having the faith that the more that I put myself into my videos about food and history and identity that they'll resonate with people and, and sometimes I do get that feedback from viewers they'll reach out to me and, and tell me that but I, I don't know also how many viewers never reached out to me so you just have to have that faith keep going it, it'll work out as long as you're authentic and intentional I like to echo what Aiden said and yeah I did not expect that story in terms of you giving a speech to a group of scientists like Filipino scientists in America about the Saga show about Filipino food about the history the day after the Atlanta shooting and of course that day I believe like seven or eleven women fell prey to that shooting and of course I yeah that story brought me back into that moment in time and Aiden remembers I was going through a lot of pain as an Asian American because I never grappled the opportunity or the possibility of death due to my racial disposition so I think it's such a meta thing where you illustrated that powerful story which speaks to your empowerment. Once again, other people, the group of scientists, the circumstances didn't empower you. You empowered yourself through finding that through a voice, through the opportunity that was given to you in light of extremely painful adversity. Likewise, your students, once again, in light of adversity of Olympia challenge, they rose up to the occasion and you didn't empower them. They empowered themselves. So I think the power of empowerment still speaks through where you have to do it for yourself. At the end of the day, it's just yourself uh, making that decision. And we talked a little bit about original thoughts and originality. And of course, nothing is more original than your Sago show. And of course, we just talked about you were able to, through the journey of Teach for America, through speeches, through now the Sago show, you are becoming more comfortable with your voice and you are being more comfortable with the messages that's being delivered through your voice. Um, so I think this is an awesome segue to going to the next chapter of your life, the Sago Show. It's weird because I've known you for four or five years now since Teach for America training in Philadelphia, but of course the emotions of life get busy and we, we all get caught up in our currents. Uh, but I came across your content again, I believe about a year ago, when you started posting these really, really enticing and aesthetic snack side videos on reels and i was like when did rachel become a chef when did she have all these knowledge about the filipino food culture and with this really soothing radio personality voice they demo all those videos on um, but yeah i'd love to talk about the genesis of the sago show uh, it is a original voice of yours and i do sense a lot of identity i sense a lot about that historical importance and your process of peeling back the layers of what it means to be Filipino, what it means to be Filipino uh, food, and what it means to be Filipino-American in, in the United States. Well, and the Sagosha wouldn't be probably if I hadn't been a teacher. I, I think that my experiences as a teacher and grappling with race and identity really led up to me starting the show. And I was really fortunate because I was invited to attend a uh, summit for uh, Teach for America core members that identified as Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander to participate in this summit in, in Oakland. And it was a really transformative conference for me to meet other teachers that had grappled with similar identity struggles as mine inside and outside of the classroom because you know outside of the classroom we are grappling with what it means to be 
Filipino American, Asian American on our own in our own personal lives. But when you're in the classroom and you are teaching students that are of a different racial background from you, what does that mean? And what is what does that mean, especially when you're in a role of power in the classroom? And how can you empower your students to recognize their potential without asserting like your own structures? Like there's that identity struggle inside and outside of the classroom. And so to to talk about that and discuss that with other Asian American Pacific Islander teachers across the country was really empowering. And leaving that conference, we all set an intention. And I remember not even knowing what what intention am I going to write down? Because it's funny when you leave like a huge experience and then they say, okay, write down the one thing that you're going to do coming off of this. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need, a, I need five minutes to think about it. But someone around us, when we were writing our intentions, was like, if you don't know what your next step is, then why not just dig into your history? Especially if you haven't had the opportunity in college or in K-12 education to really learn about Asian American history or your your own country's history, then start there. That can be a big place to start. And so um, that was in 2019. And going into 2020, I thought about that intention and how I could marry that with something that I really love, which is food. And so I decided to, you know, set out and learn 12 different Filipino dishes, and then also look up the history of each dish. And I thought that, okay, this is going to be great because I'm going to learn a little bit of history. I'm going to learn how to make adobo. I'm going to learn how to make all of my favorite foods that I I always have at home or at Filipino community parties that I, I don't usually get to have in my own home. So that was my intention in 2020 was to have this. And I decided to deliver it at, in the form of a YouTube series because um, I felt like that would keep me accountable, I guess, if I if I thought that these videos had to come out at a certain time, that I would hold myself to it. And I also thought that YouTube videos are a really great way of educating others. My vision was that, okay, you get to watch me cook, and then I'm also going to, you know, voice over these awesome histories that you might not have known. And my at first, my vision was that you're going to hear some fun facts, like maybe I'll just have like these little pop-ups of fun facts about each dish. And when I actually started working on this project, I remember that the first dish that I was going to do was was pork adobo, which I started practicing making by, uh, my mom sent me like a on her phone, a picture of this recipe card that my grandmother had written out the, the recipe for pork adobo on. And um, I live in San Francisco and my mom lives in Washington state. So I was like having to verify whether the dish that I created was actually correct by just FaceTiming my mom and sending her pictures. And I would like, I would hold up my phone to the, the pot of adobo and I would like stir it and ask my mom if the consistency was correct. And she would be like, no, 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 this is too thin. You need to cook it longer. <laughs> and it was funny because I was like, my goodness, I'm trying to learn how to make these dishes. I, I have no idea how to make and My mom isn't even here to help me. <laughs> and I, I just have the power of my, uh, my iPhone and FaceTime. And preparing for that adobo episode, you know, I was on FaceTime with my mom and also asking her like, hey, the, so the other part that I want to put in the video 
is um, about the history behind adobo. Is there anything that you know about adobo? And my mom, I remember, said, yeah, well, it's probably Spanish because it has a Spanish name, adobo, right? And I didn't really get much information there. And so she was, you know, I'm interested too, so let's look this up. So I get off FaceTime with my mom and I finished making the adobo and I open up my laptop and I just literally start Googling adobo history Filipino. And I started to find these articles um, recently in the last three or four years that were uncovering this evidence that adobo, which was for a long time considered to be a Spanish bestowed dish to the Philippines because of the 300 years that Spanish, uh, the Spanish were colonizing the Philippines. Everyone had always assumed it was a Spanish dish, but just recently there was evidence in these very old cookbooks, if you will, but old manuscripts that were documenting that native Filipinos at the time were already cooking adobo. They were already cooking meat in vinegar. And the vinegars that they were using were native vinegars, like sugarcane vinegar and, and coconut vinegar. And this evidence was leading food scholars and gastronomists to start to assert now that adobo is not Spanish. It's something that is much more complex in terms of Filipino people making this before the Spanish arrived. And the dish actually was named adobo because um, when the Spanish arrived, they ascribed a name that was familiar to them. And the dish actually evolved from there um, because the, the way that we enjoy adobo now has, has soy sauce, which is actually an ingredient that was brought from Chinese settlers in the Philippines and Chinese traders. And it's a really beautiful, complex dish because something that we thought was just a Spanish offering is something that is an indigenous preparation that has evolved over time due to the different colonial histories in the Philippines. And it's the national dish of the Philippines today, and we're just uncovering that information in the last few years. And so I was really struck by that. I saw this sort of parallel between the way that we view Filipino food and the way that I was viewing myself, because the way that I've always viewed Filipino history to that point was that it was a colonized country because I thought of the 300 years colonized by Spain between 1500 and 1800, and then 50 additional years that um, we were colonized by the United States. And while you kind of, you can't separate that from the past, I kind of just always thought about myself that way as just this, you know, someone that came from a colonized country. And that's the same way that we sort of look at food is like, oh, this is something that was given to us from Spain. This is something that was given to us from China, which totally ignores this indigenous tradition and indigenous flavor and ingredients that have persisted in spite of centuries of colonization. And it made me approach the Sago show really differently because I realized, okay, this isn't gonna be like fun facts. This is actually going to be a way for me to tell you these amazing findings that is going to totally change your mind about Filipino food. It gives you a, a completely different perspective. And I think that, that that was powerful for me because it helps me grapple with my own identity. Just this pork adobo dish made me think differently about the way that I saw myself. And so I decided to figure out how can I fit that into this video series, which felt like a tall order. 
how can I get someone to grapple with their identity through these videos? Um, but I really took that to heart, that original intention to learn about my history. And I, I, I do think that it, it is an amazing place to start because when you dig into the histories of behind your own community, whether that's hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, or just in the last five years, I think that you do uncover a lot that makes you reflect on how you view yourself today and what your role in society is today. And that's what I try to do with the Sago show is just try to get you to think a little differently. And it's amazing the community of Filipinos that have responded to me and, and told me that, you know, I really relate to the experiences that you've shared. And I, I had no idea that this was the case about, um, about buko pie. And it's just been nice to kind of share that with other Filipino Americans because I felt like I had gone through a lot of this journey by myself. And so doing it on YouTube allowed me to, you know, <laughs> do this very nerve wracking thing of broadcasting my work to a huge audience, but it, it drew people to me that we were now able to have discussions and talk about things that we might not have been able to talk about before. Definitely. I think the food element makes it almost accessible. It seems like you're using food as kind of the platform to then dive into those deeper questions, right? I can only imagine if, you know, you get silhouetted on YouTube and start asking people big questions about their identity and what does their heritage mean to them. It's like a bit of a tough sell. They'll probably go something fun and lighthearted, but you're giving the big questions an accessible foothold, which I think is such an important thing in today's world you know there's so many distractions so many options of like what content to consume by almost pre-packaging those big you know necessary and identity questions into a form that's accessible it's kind of bridging that gap a little bit and i think you know it's just such a both novel and important way of portraying those specific ideas asking those questions and I'd kind of like to zoom in on what came of that process for you. You know, you mentioned when you went to that summit, you weren't really sure what being Filipino American meant to you at that time, but I would love to kind of hear where that stands for you now. I mean, what, how has the Saga show helped orient you around that question? And ultimately, you know, what is the answer? What does being Filipino American mean to you in the year 2022? Well, the process of working on the Saga show, I think has really changed my mindset a lot about how I'm grappling with my identity as a Filipino American because I think the ways that I used to reflect on my identity were a little bit in terms of outward acceptance and representation and I felt that when I was doing the Sago show that oh maybe this will help people who aren't Filipino understand Filipino food and some of what I was trying to do at first was to explain it to a non-Filipino audience. And I think working on the Sago show over time, I realized that this the show didn't need to be for anyone else other than other Filipino Americans. And that we didn't have to prove our food to anyone. We don't have to feel like our food is accepted by others because I, I do think that in a Filipino American community, at least in the past and when I was growing up, we don't see a lot of Filipino restaurants around us as much as um, maybe other uh, Asian communities. I think a lot of that comes from uh, some Filipino American assimilation and then also just, you know, not, not embracing our food fully. 
And so as I worked on the show, I realized that it really didn't need to be for, for anyone else other than other Filipinos. And if people who weren't Filipino loved the show, then, then that would be amazing too. But I think that the important thing is Filipino Americans to access our own history and to do that, that work in an identity journey and to grapple with like these really difficult histories to process and understand that we do have a role in society today. And so I guess how, how I reflect on my journey now is that, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter if like Filipino food is entering the food scene. It doesn't really matter to me because I, I don't think that that will free us. I think that it's important for Filipino Americans to feel empowered to be active in, in their communities and to advocate for issues that are happening in the Philippines. You know, 2022 is a big election year in the Philippines right now. And doing the Sago show didn't really stay plugged in with any of the current events in the Philippines. Um, and, and I alluded to before, I talked about before, I didn't really think about my place in society in America. I think the work that I've done on the show and learning about my history and grappling with my identity helps me to recognize that I have a role as a Filipino American that is now living in America, you know, in the belly of the beast, so to say. <laughs> um, after my, my parents have moved from the Philippines here, escaping a, um, a dictator in, in Marcos in the 1980s from a, a country that was previously colonized by the United States. And so I think when when that was unlocked for me, I was able to understand that there were actions that I could be taking to support my own community, to be, to be staying relevant with what's going on in the Philippines. And I felt like really awakened by all of this. And it feels like, you know, I've been, I've been sleeping for, for like 25 years and I am, I am now woken up and I, I want to, to unlock that for others as well. That sounds amazing and welcome to the new reality. I'm glad you woke up after 25 years of a long nap. No, but like honestly though, just this episode alone, I'm learning so much about the Adobo history. I didn't know about that at all. I also assumed that it was a quote unquote gift or passage by the Spanish. And this is awesome. I just wanna say it's been an awesome conversation for me. And hearing about your story, we obviously, we talk a lot about identity on this episode. We've talked a lot about identity work. But as many of us know, identity fuels beliefs and beliefs fuels emotions and emotions fuels behaviors. So how can we examine our behaviors or how can we examine our life or where we are in life without examining deeply about our identities, who we are, when you peel back the layers of onions, when you peel back the layers, right? And it's funny hearing about history because I feel like there are so many Americans now who are exceptionally pride and prideful about their identity as Americans. Yet, when you ask them about, do you know about the Bill of Rights? Do you know what's written in the Constitution? What's the Fifth Amendment? Not the first or the second, where everyone knows. Uh, I reckon most Americans wouldn't be able to tell that, oh yeah, I don't really know about my Bill of Rights. Oh, three branches of government? What are they? And that makes me question hearing about what you said is how can you be proud of the origins of your lineage? How can you be proud of where you came from? if you don't know where we came from? Like, how can we be sure of where we're going in life if we don't know where we came from? 
Um, so I think like that identity is so, so important thing. This reminds me of our previous episodes, the way we deal with the executive chef at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sashia. And we talked about gentrification of food culture, not just the physical real estate, but cultural real estate. And this is what it sounds like, because if food is one of the most authentic expressions of our experiences, what happens when that authentic expression gets tainted by different colonization, different imperialism, different influences. This is definitely going to be a conversation for me to unpack uh, because I wonder, now thinking back to my history as a Korean American, I wonder how has imperialism or colonized influence uh, existed even within the Korean American food culture cuisine, right? But my question for you, Rachel, is you speak a lot about culture, identity, and history. So I'm wondering as someone with a STEM background, as a bioengineering background, uh, how do you see and what do you think about the importance of history or at least uh, carefully examining it? I think that history can really empower you. And I guess thinking about STEM, the first person that comes to mind is a woman named Maria Arosa, who is a Filipina, that she actually did her graduate education in the United States, I believe in the early 1900s. And she actually did her graduate degree at University of Washington, go Huskies. <laughs> and she um, studied food chemistry. She was really, really passionate about the idea of making the Philippines self-sustaining. And so after her graduate program, she was able to devise dozens and dozens of, of different food products that allowed Filipino native ingredients to be used to create the food product. So one really um, somewhat well-known example is banana ketchup. And banana ketchup is a really uh, popular ingredient among Filipinos. It, it is ketchup made with bananas. And the origin of this is that in the Philippines, you know, tomatoes don't grow natively. It's a, a, an ingredient that has to be imported. And so going back to her goal of making the Philippines self-sustaining, she actually, you know, devised this, this product, banana ketchup, to use banana, which is a native ingredient to the Philippines, to replicate this condiment. Um, you know, moving towards this goal to use more native ingredients to be less dependent on imports. Banana ketchup is a, a staple in the Filipino community. It's, it's very iconic. And I was super surprised to learn about this history of, of banana ketchup because not only is it something that I had never thought about, like why did it use bananas, but there's also this amazing STEM badass in Maria Rosa who is doing all of this work, getting her multiple graduate degrees and then using that to come back to the Philippines and um, bring and create these products that were going to help the country. And that's just one of many of her dozens and dozens of, of inventions. She also invented calamansi juice powder, which is like in between an orange and a lime in taste. It's a Filipino fruit. Um, and she, she made like a juice powder out of that. Kind of like maybe like a, a powdered tang or like Kool-Aid equivalent. When I learned about her, I was like, why do you never learn about all of these amazing kick-ass, like Asian American scientists? I, I think we learn about a few, but I remember going through bioengineering at UW and feeling like, this is not for a Filipino. <laughs> I don't see any other Filipinos except one of my best friends, Josh, like in the program, we were like the only ones. We didn't have any Filipino professors. 
and it did feel isolating. Like we didn't learn about Filipino scientists at any point. And so that was like a nice nugget that I learned working on the show on my banana ketchup episode because I realized that like there's all of these awesome scientists in Asian American history that I bet if we learned more about them, then people would feel more called to be in STEM as well, or or at least feel that if they do choose that as a path, that there there are people who have done that before, and there's people of your same culture to look up to, and I think that's that's really important, specifically in STEM, where it's you know really white male predominant. I think that those types of histories help. This conversation as a whole, I think, reminds me of one of the episodes Ben Waha and I recorded a few months ago, and we talked about an idea of a porthole analogy in that we kind of all see life through our own portholes, right? And the more we can, I guess, open new sides of it or almost talking to new people with new perspectives, specifically from diverse backgrounds, is almost shining more of the porthole to be seen through. You know, understanding new perspectives from different cultures, for me, has been a practice to kind of see a more equal and holistic view of life. You know, I think we all recognize that we see life through our own projections and lenses. And as a white male based in the Philadelphia suburbs, I definitely recognize I come with an enormous amount of both privilege and I think more importantly, responsibility. Right. I think the way that this world is going these days, we almost need to leap or we as white males need to lean into that responsibility to elevate voices around us, both from other genders, other walks of life, other backgrounds. And I think the idea I want to bring in there is just Filipino, both culture and food as a whole. I think you've given a lot of really awesome specific examples. Like I watched your banana ketchup video last night huge fan maybe very hungry late at night i'm proud to admit but you know more on the holistic filipino side what elements of their culture or even their food traditions do you think are most resonant or even would be most beneficial to applying to american culture or you know worldly culture in general well, I guess I immediately think about this framework that uh, Doreen Fernandez, who, which is, who was a Filipino food writer, created, and that structure was called indigenization, and it was a way to understand the evolution of Filipino food. And the, the phases of indigenization in this framework were that first, a food is introduced into, um, from another country to the Philippines. So we can say like there were Chinese settlers um, in the Philippines, for example. So the Chinese bring a dish. And then the second phase is that it gets indigenized in terms of like native ingredients and native preparations are now evolving the dish that was originally brought by another country. And then basically this cycle happens over time that this original dish that was, you know, looked completely different in its home country is now made Filipino because of the preparations and ingredients that are introduced to it. And so now it's this completely different dish. And I think that the helpful part of it is that Doreen asserts that that dish is still Filipino because it's not the same as what it was in its homeland. It's something that has had native preparations, native ingredients introduced to it. And so lumpia is really, the Filipino egg roll is, is very different from 
an egg roll in a different country or what egg rolls look like in, in China where they were then indigenized in the Philippines. I think that that's an important, it was an important framework for me because it helps me understand that, you know, even though there's a lot of dishes in Filipino cuisine that probably seem borrowed or as Ben was saying before, gifted, like adobo, you know, we have a lot of Spanish influenced dishes like empanadas and machado where there are these Spanish versions of it. The Filipino version is beautiful and, you know, tasty in its own right and it is different. And I think that that's really important to translate to your own identity as well. Because I think that even though the Philippines was colonized, you see so much indigenous tradition that persists despite that. And there are many indigenous dishes that are still enjoyed that have no colonial influence. And I think that's what makes Filipino food really beautiful is that there's this persistence of old tradition despite you know almost 400 years of being colonized. And that's what makes Filipino food so complex. I think how I translate that to my own identity is that, you know, I'm not just a girl from a Spanish colonized country. Like I cringe thinking that that's how I thought of myself before, you know, because I would see Spanish influenced words in Tagalog. I would just think, oh, it's because of Spanish colonization. We're, you know, we're just country that was colonized by Spain. And it's so much more than that when you unlock that there are things that were influenced in the Philippines, but that there is an evolution over time in these dishes and that we can truly call those things Filipino. And I think that that's like a hard thing to grapple with because I think a lot of other Filipino Americans could relate to this, that whenever anyone asks you, what is Filipino food exactly? Like, how would you describe it? It's really difficult because you just think to like, okay, well, there's there's a lot of Spanish influence. There's um, a lot of Chinese influence. So yeah, there's just a lot of things borrowed. And we focused on that external influence. And really the beauty is in what I was saying before is the indigenous traditions, indigenous flavors, indigenous ingredients that help make Filipino food so, so different and complex. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.